Welcome to episode 15 of the Body Electric Podcast for October 16th, 2015. I'm your host, Nathan Hiltz, and today's guest is tenor saxophonist Scott Marshall. Scott has four albums out as a leader and has a monthly concert series at the Monarch Tavern. Uh, tonight we're performing a selection of music by the great jazz guitarists, including Wes Montgomery, Barney Kessel, Kenny Burrell, Charlie Christian. And uh, so I thought it would be fun for us to sit down today and just talk about what Scott's been up to. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, my website's NathanHiltz.com, and get me on Twitter, that's at NateHiltz, N-A-T-E-H-I-L-T-Z. All right. Hello. Hello. <laughs> hey again. Hey. How's it going, Scott? I'm good, Nathan. Thank you. Good. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to be on the podcast. Ah. And uh, again, thanks for the coffee. Well, no podcast is complete without a good cup of joe. You need it. You need it. You need it. <laughs> All right. So how's saxophone going? Saxophone's going good. Yeah? Yes. You just got back from Calgary, right? Just got back from Calgary with my quartet. Yeah. It was Great. a blast. Cool. And Adrian Ferrugia with us. And Nick Fraser and Wes Neal. And oh, man. Yeah, we thumped hard at them. Nice band. Yeah, it was a yeah. lot of fun. A lot of cool. Fun. Yeah. Have you, do you guys have a recording? We have three recordings, uh, three recordings under the quartet. It's usually Marcella Coyne is on piano, but mm-hmm. he has an injured arm right now, so he's out of commission. So we took Adrian with us, and he filled in fantastically as he as he would. Great player. And, but yeah, it's this, uh, we were out kind of promoting our third recording, our most recent release called Nahahi Ridge. Mm, cool. Is, uh, yeah, 911 liked it. CBC seems to like it. So Nice. That's great. Yeah. And um, have you been out that way before? Are you from? I'm there? from Calgary originally. You're from Calgary? Yeah, okay. So I... I take my group out about every five years. You okay. know, it's uh, it's expensive to travel with musicians, as you know. So it's uh, it's you know, and as a jazz musician, you're not exactly touring to make money. You're you're touring to go play. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, it was going to play for family and friends. So mm-hmm. you know, I just uh, sort of rummage together enough to cover the flights. Basically, is what I do. <laughs> right. Right. And then I just sort of cover the boys myself, and uh, mm-hmm. and hope I make enough CD sales to. Mm-hmm. knock some of that cost down which we did we sold a lot of cds while we were there so. right and just gigs or clinics too uh we just did gigs we did play in my brother is a high school math teacher so we did go play for the band kids at his school oh but we just gave a quick little you know half an hour performance played three or four tunes for them and uh-huh and uh and that was it it's great know. playing for kids eh? oh it is because yeah. you can nick especially Oh yeah! Once he pulled his tambourine out, the place just went nuts. Yeah, <laughs> they <laughs> love the drums, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they, they were do. they were very impressed with him for sure. So cool, was... great man. And uh, so on that recording, um, are the original compositions contributed by each of the members of the band? Uh, no, there, uh, on this versus... particular one, it's all my stuff. Oh, okay. All the tunes are written by me. Uh, on the one before that, I think Marcel had a tune. Mm-hmm. Every now and then, I feature a tune or two of, of the other guys in the group, but mostly it's my writing. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. And uh, how would you characterize the style of the music? Um, well, I mean, it's it's obviously within the jazz mm-hmm. genre. You are a saxophone player. I am a saxophone yeah. player. It's instrumental music, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm. I don't take it too far out of the out of the extreme. I try to make my music accessible mm-hmm. to both the musicians that are playing it, and also to the audience that's listening to it. So, what I mean by that is, is I like to write tunes that musicians enjoy playing. Mm. And they, you know, I, I, my favorite thing is when somebody finishes my tune and says, oh, that's a great tune, man, that's fun. That, that to me says, yeah, you've, mm. you've written a good tune if the musician enjoys writing it. But at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a populist in the sense that I want, I want people in the audience to like my tunes, too, mm. right? I want them to like my group and the sound that we're presenting and, 
and uh, so I, I you know I'm not trying to I'm not trying to blow any boundaries out you know I'm not trying to be on the cutting edge of jazz I'm not trying to be the most experimental mm. not that there's anything wrong with any of that stuff I enjoy doing that stuff too but this mm -hmm. particular project is sort of mm. more down the middle and it's yeah I guess I'm kind of coming out of the hard bop era you know the late 50s early 60s probably would have the biggest influence mm -hmm. uh, on my group sound but as far as writing I mean you know, you and I are both products of our age, right? I was, mm -hmm. you know, born in 68, childhood in the 70s, teenage years in the 80s, adult in the 90s and 2000s. So it's, uh, you know, uh, hip-hop has obviously influenced me. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, all, all genres of music have influenced me in some way. World music has obviously influenced mm -hmm. me. I used to be a massive Peter Gabriel fan. Well, not oh, that you yeah. ever really stopped, but, right, right. you know, he sort of pulled me into the whole world music thing. I discovered Indian music because of him. You know, I discovered... One of my favorite international artists is Yusin Dur, for instance. I'm not familiar. Uh, he's a Senegalese singer. He was the guy on In Your Eyes on the Peter Gabriel tune. So I discovered him through, you know, Peter Gabriel sort of steered me in that, you know, world music direction. Mm. A lot of African stuff, a lot of South American stuff, you know. Interesting. So it's, personally, I think I have a very broad appreciation of music, mm. both that I enjoy playing and enjoy listening to mm -hmm. but as far as my own writing it's you know it's pretty jazz right sort of right. 50s 60s era quartetness but i'm sure all these different things that you listen to yeah, seep into it somehow see, yeah how like, can they not yeah right? how can they not right we're, we're all affected by the beatles in a sense <laughs> yeah right? you of know? that sense of of melody i mm. i'm really drawn to melody mm. uh, i think a strong singable melody is a really important thing for me mm. so i think i a lot of my writing comes out of melody first and then filters down to harmony. Which is a dangerous way to write as a jazz musician because sometimes you think you've written a great tune and then you try and blow on it. And it's like, oh my god, these yeah. are hard changes. It's such a classic thing as a guitar, you know, a comping instrument to like see the chord changes that saxophone players come up with sometimes. It can be just, yeah. what the hell is yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. What, is <laughs> what do you mean? Um, so that's an interesting band, though. The the members of your band all like there are guys I think of that have a, a strong uh, presence in the free scene, Absolutely. free improvised and, scene, and with Nick especially, Nick Fraser. That one of my favorite things about him is that he does come from that scene, right? But he also loves to just sit and swing. He mm -hmm. loves to just sit there and, and swing and make it swing as hard as he can. Like mm -hmm. he's he loves doing that too. But the the sort of improvised element of that they do so much of their playing in and if anything ever happens on stage if you ever screw something up or or there's a little crash going on of some kind while you're mm -hmm. playing when you're playing with guys from that scene there's never a worry mm -hmm. right it just, oh yeah it just goes for a bit until we can sort of all right here we go back into this section here yeah, they're all so, ears they're sure. all ears they're yeah. all ears and that's you know that's that i like that aspect of them mm. you know and mm -hmm. uh, i i unleash it a little bit sometimes in the group and you know, we like to do some group improvs and stuff, but I never let it go for that long, sort of, you know. Right, it's, right. It's just to sort of say, yeah, we got this. But. It's cool to have that potentiality yeah. in, in your band members playing a straight-ahead yeah. thing. Like, yeah. I think that... Yeah, well, because then the tunes can go anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. you're, never, you're never harnessed by the tune then. I mean, we are in a sense that we're following the map and stuff, but, mm. you know, a lot can happen within that map, so... Mm. Cool. Well, why don't we play it, too? All right, let's play it, too. Yeah. What do you feel like playing? You want to do this one here, four on six? Sure, why not? Nice Montgomery tune we're going to yeah, play tonight. Let's do it. All right. All right. We're going to be straight in on this bad boy? Um, well, we usually play the bass line through once and then melody second time. All right, that sounds good. Yeah.
Excellent, cool. excellent rehearsing. All right. <laughs> um, one, two, one, two, three. tonight mm -hmm. and uh, we're playing at the Monarch at the Tavern. Monarch Tavern right in Little Italy and not to be confused with Monarch Pub yes right. which is in the 
hotel off Bloor Street there, which I can't remember right now. Right, and they do their they have a Wednesday concert series. Yeah, but this place um, books a variety of different musical acts. Yeah, right? it, uh, I mean it's uh, it's got an upstairs, which you know they got their TVs and their pool table and all that sort of public activity in, mm -hmm. and then they got a big downstairs room, which is more like an event room, so people can rent it out for different events, but they also you know, feature live music in there. So a really great group that's in there all the time. Uh, they're usually on the Monday night before me. Second Monday of each month is the uh, that old jump orchestra. Martin Loomer, right? Yeah, Martin Loomer. Um, Orange Blue Devils. Devils. Orange, Orange Devils. Devils. Yeah, Martin Loomer and the Orange Devils. So they're in there one Monday a month. I'm in there one Friday a month with uh, with my series. And then there's yeah, there's all sorts of groups that play in there. There's funk bands and folk groups, and so it's not just a jazz club, which mm -hmm. is you know it's maybe a good thing. Mm -hmm. I think. That might be the future of venues in many ways, is just venues that feature music, mm -hmm. not any particular genre of music. Like yeah. I think the days of places like the Rex that featured just jazz, you know, that doesn't seem to be the way of things now. Clubs that, like if you think of downtown Toronto, there's no rock room. Right, like the, like, yeah. like there's rooms that maybe have rock a few times. Just the horseshoe and stuff. Yeah, 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 you know, but you know, or there's no funk room, or there's no yeah, right? like it's yeah. music just sort of exists where it seems to exist, but there's not a lot of venues that are just strictly genre venues. I mean, yeah. I guess Grossman's is still kind of a blues bar, sort of, sort of, but yeah. you know, like I think a lot of places are cross genreing now. Mm. It's, mm -hmm. The my theory is when people ask me what type of music I play now, I say I play live music. I don't give a genre at all anymore, and they look at me, and what do you mean? Well, I, I have other musicians on stage with me, and we play instruments, and together we make music, and we play live music. Right? Yeah. I don't say, oh, I play jazz, because that's a four-letter word to some people, right? Like True. It's, they use that word to describe music they either A, don't like, or B, don't understand, or C. Yeah, or they think just, it's relaxing, or they yeah, think yeah. it doesn't it make can, any yeah, sense. No, you could or... say jazz, it could mean anything from Dixieland to... To Coltrane, to Kenny G, to Michael Bublier, right? You know, to, <laughs> it could be, yeah. you know, anything. Mm -hmm. Ninety-one-one plays Sting now, you know. Yeah. So it's <laughs> so it seems like everyone's making a jazz record now. Yeah. Dylan and yeah. you know, Rod Stewart and all that. Yeah. Um, so how long have you been doing this monthly series at the Monarch? This is the third season we've done it. So I started it two falls ago, I guess, mm -hmm. and we did we did the first season and on Thursday nights, and then last year we moved it to Friday nights, which I like better. It's mm -hmm. easier to get people out on a Friday night for sure, and uh, and we had a good year last year. So this is the this is our second show of our third season tonight. So. Great, great. Yeah. And so uh, you have a different theme each each yeah, month. I try and do a different show each month. You know, mm -hmm. over a year, like season one and season two, I had some similar shows with mm -hmm. similar players, but uh, each each one of each series is a different show. So the mm -hmm. first one we did this year was a tribute to the quintets of Miles Davis. So I had Kevin Turcott in and uh, Dave Restivo and Dave Young and Terry Clark. So I had the rhythm section in wow. a sense. Wow. So we did we did classic quin quintet stuff and it was a blast because we didn't only do the 50s stuff, we did the 60s stuff too, some of the Wayne tunes. Cool. Which was which was a lot of fun. And we avoided kind of blue, right? Because it, that's not a quintet. So mm. it's uh, not that there's, you know, it's my favorite album, but we didn't play any of it on this particular. Awesome. Yeah. That's, you know, it's been played a lot. Don't need to do it. Don't need to do it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, we're, you know, and then I have plans for some other shows. I want to do a South American show with uh, some South American musicians I've met. So focus on Argentini, Argent, Argentina, Argentina, <laughs> Brazil, yeah. you know, Venezuela, and the influence that those musics had on jazz, right? Uh -huh. Not the Caribbean, but the actual South America. 
Right. Especially Brazil, which had such a large influence on jazz. So mm -hmm. I have some South American players with me as we do it. So mm -hmm. Present it a little more authentically. And right. I'll do my Minga show again because that's a big hit and it's just uh, an awful lot of fun. Yeah. And cool. uh, I'll do my post-holiday funk in January, right after post-holiday post-holiday funk. funk. Nice. That'll be the third annual post-holiday funk. Oh, great! Yeah. Great. So cool. So that that seems like a really like a a good way to do it. Like once a month. Yeah. You know, because I feel like every month we have these ideas and you know ways you want to go with your music, and then that's like a one do like preparing for one gig once a month seems to be like a really kind of it's doable reasonable amount of stuff. It's, it's yeah. re I mean, uh, if you think about what it takes to be a, a musician and a and a promoter today, like we do everything, right? We don't have managers and booking agents and press agents and all that stuff. Like we are all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So. You know, if you're if you're running a series like this, you got to dedicate one day to PR alone, right? Mm -hmm. And that's you know that's a morning of making up posters and and all your online little posters that you want to make for Facebook mm -hmm. and Twitter and all that sort of stuff, right? And then, then you know, there's a half morning getting it all out there, right? Putting it up on Facebook, joining all the calendars around town, like mm -hmm. the Jazz FM calendar, the Whole Note calendar, getting mm -hmm. it in now, you know, all that that stuff all takes. 10, 20, half an hour, right? Totally. You know, so, but, you know, it takes a day probably of giving time to just the promotion of the event. Mm. And then you got your music prep, you got to learn the music yourself, if, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you know, if, if it's harder music, sometimes you need to arrange a rehearsal and getting X number of musicians any place at the same time, as you know, it's very difficult. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, it, it, it has its challenges. So once a month, I wouldn't mm -hmm. want to do it twice a month. Yeah. Or weekly? Good Lord, no. Yeah, you but know, I mean, so. creatively, it must be really good for you to be able to have a venue and a format to explore it's, it's where you want to go. They really have given me a cool platform, yeah. without a doubt, you know. Um, and, and part of it was, you know, I... You know, doing a couple Rex gigs a year, mm -hmm. you know, and then maybe doing a couple more with a big band or something. I like I wasn't really feeling part of the Toronto jazz scene, even though I was a jazz musician. I did lots of cocktail and trio gigs mm -hmm. out of the public eye, and stuff like that. But I wasn't feeling like I was part of the Toronto scene. So I thought, well, what can I do to contribute more? So mm -hmm. I created, I created something that contributes mm -hmm. to the Toronto scene. And and the greatest thing for me has been all the great musicians that I've got to play with and or meet. Like in the case of you and I, we met doing one mm -hmm. of these shows. I we got did. your name from Michael Acapinti and mm -hmm. hired you for a show. And now you've done two or three with us. I, I have, think. yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, it's been great as far as expanding my network of musicians that I know in town. But it's also been great in, in you know, just thinking of the bass players I've played with alone in this series. Besides my, my own bass player from my quartet, Wes Neal, who's a very solid quietly goes about being a great bass player in town mm -hmm. i've also got to play with dave young the legend right who's mm. oh, wonderful to play with and mike downs last year's juno winner who's a beautiful bass player played with jim vivian uh you know so mm -hmm. we've had some really great bass players in lots of great piano players david braid david stevo adrian mm. frugia stacy mcgregor great so you know guitar players i've had you you and michael i guess right. <laughs> the two i'm featuring tonight are cool. the two Oh, and Steve Briggs. I shouldn't forget Steve, oh, Briggs, Steve Briggs and cool. Russell DeCarl. Yeah. I've had Russell DeCarl in, in his trio for a couple times, right? Oh, cool. So uh, Steve Briggs has played the show, too, Great. a couple yeah. times. Yeah. So uh, why don't we talk a little bit about where you come from on the saxophone? Like, okay. uh, when did you start playing saxophone? Uh, well, I started on clarinet in grade 7. Mm -hmm. And I went in band because my older brother and sister went in band, right? And I thought mm -hmm. that was really cool. I went to all their concerts and stuff. and. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to play sax right off the bat, but our teacher wouldn't let us start on sax in grade seven, which I, I it's a smart thing, I think. Right. And uh, so I started on clarinet, played two years of clarinet, 
And then I remember in grade nine, I remember the day vividly. Well, not the whole day, but I remember the moment of walking in the band room and my band teacher saying, oh, Scott, I've got a new instrument for you and pointing to this case on the floor. Wow. And I can remember opening the latches. I can remember, oh, it was a, one of those old brown Yamaha cases, right? And yeah. I can remember opening it up. I can remember the smell of the case. I can remember seeing that. Years of shit. No, it was a brand new Oh, it was Yamaha. a brand new horn. Brand oh, new wow. horn. Like, I put the first scratch on it, right? Beautiful. Like, it was, so, you know, and it's... Uh, there's a great book about the saxophone called The Devil's Horn. I think the guy's name is Mike Seagal, maybe. I might have his name wrong, but uh, tells the history of the saxophone. And there's, you know, lots of little quotes from famous saxophone players talking about the first time they, they played saxophone and sort of mm. being bitten by the serpent, right? You know? Right. And that was it, man. Opening that case and seeing that tenor sax, it was, that wow. was it from that moment on. I was like, this thing's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, Great. And, you know, started playing it in grade nine, continued in, in grade 10. And then my dad brought, bought me my good horn, my, my nice Selmer. He got it for me when I was in grade 11, so 1985, I guess. Wow. And I've been pounding away on this baby ever since. So. Right, and then did you come right up to Toronto after high school? No, I uh, did a year at U of C, the University mm -hmm. of Calgary, just doing general study stuff. And uh, But I played in the U of C big band that year. And, uh, a lot of, and it's funny, I still know a lot of really great Calgary players that are part of the Calgary scene from <laughs> that year in that big band. You know? Oh, that's great. Met them yeah. all then, so I still kind of have my tentacles in the Calgary scene because of that year. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I went up to Grant McEwen college for a couple of years and studied there and it was a it still is a great program there mm -hmm. uh and studied there and then from there i went down to st fx because ah, uh, right. at the age i was at that time in canada basically there was mcgill and st fx were the only degree granting programs york was a bachelor of arts with a major in music or something mm -hmm. like that and humber was still just a college program mm -hmm. u of t didn't have a program yet mm -hmm. so kind of our two choices were grant McEwen or i mean uh where McGill and Montreal are saying of X. Mm. So sort of out of Grant McHugh and half of us went to McGill and half of us. Right. And, you know, now we're all back in Toronto. Right. <laughs> so what was it like being in Annie Ganesh in those days? Well, I mean, it, Annie Ganesh is a small place that doubles when school's in, right? And right. so, like, the music department was only a, maybe 100 people tops. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you're a bit isolated out there a little bit, too. So, I mean, we played a lot. Mm. Like, we played a lot of music there. There were good players, and we played because it was something to do. Yeah. Right, you know, and there was this place called the O, the O Tavern, or the Dirty O. I can't remember what it was called. We all called it the Dirty O, but we would play there every weekend. A different band would be in there. You know, there was lots of student bands. We did lots of playing. Mm -hmm. Excellent access to the professors because it was small. We hung out with them, right? After mm -hmm. after we were done classes, we'd go to the pub with them, right? Great. So you learn there too, right? Mm -hmm. You know? And yeah. So, I mean, in that aspect, it was great, you know, compared to where I did my master's. It was kind of the opposite, mm -hmm. you know? So, uh... Did you have any interaction with Don Palmer? Um, a little bit. He came yeah. through a little bit while I was yeah. there. And Jerry Grinelli, too. Oh, great. Know? I didn't realize that Jerry Grinelli was on that all that uh, Charlie Brown stuff until yeah. just this summer. I was yeah. like, wow, I've played with him. Totally, <laughs> so, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, St. of X. And then I did ships for three years. Worked on what we called the University of the High Seas. Ah. Playing on cruise ships. Uh -huh. And uh, and it really was the University of the High Seas because I learned like a lot of obscure standards out there. Uh-huh. So you were in a small group, jazz group? No, I was in the show band. You were in the show band? Okay. You know, you had to do some cocktail sets in that and stuff. And uh, right. uh, we really worked on my doubles out there. You know, clarinet and flute came mm. together quite well out there. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, you'd take lessons from the other guys that were on board. Mm -hmm. You know, if a guy got on that could really play something, I'd always go pick their brain and spend time playing with them. And 
Uh, and then from, uh, from the ships, I went to the University of North Texas to get my master's. Mm. Uh, spent three years slugging it out down there. Wow. So, you know, there was over 3,000 people in the music department there. Yeah, way different than Annie Ganesh. Well, yeah. I was, yeah, the music department was bigger than St. FX University is, right? Wow. So, you know, you were in direct competition with over 100 saxophone players. Right, so you know your your guys that were your buddies were also the guys that you were absolutely competing with for status in the school. Mm. You know, and what band you made to per determined your status in a way in that school, right? Mm. So, but uh, yeah, I put some time in learning. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right, master yeah. of music. Master of music. Yeah, great. And who did you study with when you were down? Uh... Well, the the head prof at the time was a guy named James Riggs, Jim Riggs. Okay. You know, thousands of sax players. Have, I've been through there, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, it was funny. It, about a year after I was at North Texas, I was watching Letterman one night, and Boublier was on, and yeah. the entire sax section was the guys that I'd been playing with the year before. The only guy missing was me. Oh, <laughs> so all North Texas guys. All yeah. North Texas wow. guys, yeah. Crazy. Was, uh, and that happens a lot. Harry Connick came one year and just hired the whole, basically just hired the one o'clock almost, you know. Wow. Definitely hired the whole sax section. Cool. You know, they'll come out on the road, you know. And I mean, there's, there's, that school has a lot of lore, you know, going mm -hmm. right back to Jim Hall studied there, right? Right, you know, right. It celebrated its 50th year when I was there in the late 90s. So it's, mm. it's you know, the oldest jazz program, I think. Crazy. So that was quite a place for sure, you know. Great. And then, so how did, then you came to Toronto? Then I came to Toronto. Right. Yeah. So okay. when I knew I wanted to come back to Canada. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I, did, I, I didn't want to stay in the States. Mm. Uh, I'm a Canadian. I like being in Canada. <laughs> so, I feel, uh, I you feel know, you. This, the States was a little bit different enough for me that I thought, no, I don't think I want to carve mm -hmm. it out down here. Mm -hmm. how, uh, how was the scene there compared to Dallas Toronto? was amazing. Like, Dallas, yeah. and part of it was the university fed the scene in yeah. a way. Uh, there was a lot of really great players, and like Toronto, the standard of playing was very high. Uh, <clears throat> they love live music there. Mm -hmm. At least they did when I was there, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Tons of us had gigs, had mm. regular jobbing gigs. So, like, you know, my last year there especially, I was down the highway to Dallas five nights a week easily. Wow. To go do gigs, you know, and uh, it was great. It was a bit of a gray area with the visa because it was, you know, quote, quote, related to our course of study. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, no, I, it was great. And Dallas taught me if you want to be busy as a musician, go to where there's money. Right. You know, I spent hmm. a lot of time in the Maritimes, and I love the Maritimes, but there's, you know, people aren't flowing with the cash down there, so no. it's, uh, yeah. there's not a lot of work. Musicians have to work really hard down there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I looked at Canada, and I thought, all right, well, you got Ottawa, Montreal, Halifax, Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, Saskatoon. So I eliminated all the small ones first, got rid yeah. of them, you know. And then I just sort of started looking at all the big cities. I knew I didn't want to go back to Calgary. I knew I was there. I knew I didn't want to go back to Edmonton. Great scene in Edmonton, but I'd been there. I, I knew mm. that I, I wanted to move on from mm. remote Alberta-ness. Um, still some great players out there, though, in Edmonton. Mm. Really, all of Alberta, there's some great players. So, I, you know, it kind of came down in the end uh, to Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, and I kind of eliminated Montreal. I wasn't a McGill guy. I'm not a French speaker. Mm. I thought I don't want to be up against that battle. Mm -hmm. uh, so I looked at Vancouver and I looked at Toronto and I looked at how many people I knew in both places. Mm -hmm. 
And being from the West, I knew Vancouver a lot better, and I thought, you know, I think Toronto's the best place in Canada to be, and I have, you know, I've been here, it's my 16th year, and I don't regret it at all. It was Great. the right decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you just get more opportunity here as a musician. There's more competition, there's more saxophone players vying for work, but totally. you also, there's way more opportunity. Mm -hmm. If somebody can't make your gig, it's not a panic, because you know there's somebody good yeah. that's going to be able to make your gig. You start at the list, and you start working your way down until someone says yes, and it's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I'm never disappointed with who I end up with on gigs, because they're always great players, right? So, and, and how do you find, like, how has the scene changed since you first got here? That's 16 years, that's a... <clears throat> that's quite a, a chunk, that's, right? Yeah, I, I think it's it a very is, different city. Thank you was. for making me feel old. Yeah, no. No, <laughs> uh, no yeah. Um, it has changed a lot. Uh, when I first came to town, and maybe it's just my position in the scene has changed a mm -hmm. bit. To a, but I, I, I think there were more big bands happening when I first came to town. Like Whitney Smith had his band going, mm -hmm. and somebody sent me into a Whitney rehearsal like my first week in town. Mm -hmm. This guy Kevin Goss said, oh, you want to go to this rehearsal band room? And, uh, and so I went and sat in the band, fresh out of North Texas. I knew how to sit in the big band, so mm -hmm. I ended up in the band from that rehearsal on. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it was a brilliant stroke of genius because from there, I kept meeting saxophone players. 90% mm -hmm. of my work comes from other saxophone players, right? Mm -hmm. It's not guitar players and bass players that are phoning me, it's other sax players. Hey, can you cover this for me? Yeah. Right? So it's, uh, you know, I met Turner King, Simon Wallace, Jeff King, uh, Andy Ballantyne, Chris mm -hmm. Mitchell was around the scene there. Like, it just, mm -hmm. all these great sax players who then in turn, oh, this guy can play, I'll throw him some work, right? right. And so out of Whitney's band, all of a sudden, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, got, I was starting to get work around town that quite early well. into being here, because I didn't go to school here or anything, so I entered a scene quite cold. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we first got here, we had a band together. There was a lot of us out of St. Evacs that sort of all got here within a year of each other, and we had a band called Out of Order mm -hmm. together. And we sort of, we were more in the improvised uh, scene a little bit, but we certainly, we played a lot. We hustled gigs, and we played in a lot of clubs, and we invited a lot of people out to hear us. And mm. we were unique enough, and, and, and we were a really tight band. We were well-rehearsed and had some cool compositions, and uh, and we got a bit of attention, and I got a lot of gigs out of that, too. All of us did. Jordy Haley was the guitar oh, yeah. player from that Beautiful group. Guitar and player. Evan, he's gone back to Halifax. He's actually. gone back to Halifax. Evan Shaw was... Uh, one of the composers, another mm -hmm. sax player in the group who did really well. And then Nick played in that group for a while with mm -hmm. us. Wes Neal played in that group. Marcella Coyne played in it. Cool. So, yeah, it was a neat group, and it kind of vaulted us into different scenes, right? Mm. You know, uh, it got us involved with uh, Lynn Tremblay, the singer we worked with for a lot of years. And, uh, uh, yeah, so it's weird how it, it branches out. But going back to your original question, I think there's less big bands mm -hmm. now, less reading big bands. There's some starting to pop up again, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, like we played it. We used to play at the Bamboo once a month or once every two weeks when it was down on Queen Street. Mm -hmm. I guess a lot of clubs have changed in mm -hmm. that 16 years. Like the Montreal Bistro's gone, the Senator's gone and come back. Saxon Young came and went. The Train came and went. Mm. Um, you know, different clubs around town have had different mm. configurations. The Dominion kind of still has music. Mm. Transact still rolling. You mm. know. Uh, I mean, the, the scene's always in flux, I think. Right? Yeah. You know, the type of gigs I've done have changed. I do more shows now, mm. like more Union, Casino Rama, playing for The Temptations or Johnny Mathis or backing up Bob Newhart. Like, I've done a bit of that. The wedding scene has changed a lot. I think it's gotten a lot smaller. Yeah. Uh, you know, like my first, 
my first eight years in town, I did a lot of wedding work, a lot of jobbing wedding work, in a lot of different bands. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't in any, I was the sub for them all kind of thing, right? You know, and now it's it's just filtered down that I do like a couple a year, really, mm. you know, from being quite busy at it. And I don't think I'm the only one that, yeah. that's noticed that. I've noticed and, that too, uh, yeah. You know, and the guys that do have the gigs aren't subbing out of them like they used to because they're not as busy. Yeah. Right? So sure. it's, uh, yeah. it has changed, but there's cool things that happen too, you know, mm. like there's just so many new great players that show up on the scene mm -hmm. year after year and, uh, yeah, you just get to play, you know more, the longer you're around, the no more you know people, right? The more True. people you know, the more chances you get to play, the more cool things that mm. happen to you, mm. you know. Cool, man. Well, let's, uh, let's play let's another one. Another. You want to do Body and Soul? Yeah, let's do Body and Soul. Let me just tune up here. Body and soul sounds good. All right. Point this way. Not ready to type thing. You gonna set me up or are we straight in? I'll set you up. All right. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
nice. A little man. throwback Friday. Yeah, sure. <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. That's one tune. of my favorite old standards. It's mm -hmm. just something special about that. Too. It never gets old. Never gets old. And you yeah. can play it so many different ways. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You can go totally old school Ben Webster -y on it, or mm -hmm. you can do the Duke. Sure. The Duke Ellington Coltrane way on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those mm -hmm. perfect tunes. Cool. So I was wondering, um, so you teach um, school band, I do. Yeah. right? Yeah. Great. And uh, so, uh, how do you enjoy that? Uh, how do you like doing uh, that? It's it's, I I enjoy the sharing of music immensely. Mm -hmm. Like you know, I I'm a firm believer in if you have the knowledge, you should share it. Mm -hmm. As far as us being musicians, right? And I I try and preach that to my kids. Music is a sharing thing. It's not a competition. If he's better than you, go find out why. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Don't say, oh, I hate him. He can do this. Like go say, how are you doing that? Right? Like figure it out. Get him to show you. If you don't know fingering, ask the guy next to you. Right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a music is a sharing. Let's all make each other better musicians. Mm -hmm. So, in that sense, I en really enjoy sharing my knowledge mm -hmm. of, of music with the kids, getting them on instruments, seeing, you know, especially when they get something and their eyes pop and they're like, ah, I can do it. That's, that's a great moment, right, you know? And uh, so I really enjoy that aspect, but there's, you know, every job has challenges, obviously, mm -hmm. right? Music, music isn't regarded as the most important thing in schools, which is, you know, highly disappointing to me. Mm. I, I sit in principal's office all the time and argue, no, it's the most important <laughs> thing in school, right. you know? But you run into deaf ears most of the time, right, because they're, you got to follow their curriculums and their guidelines from the government. And mm. All the studies show how important it is, especially, you know, when you get the kids in the junior high, late elementary ages, that learning an instrument, like it's connecting the lobes of their brain, right? It's mm. firing all the stuff in between the lobes, mm. right? So really it helps all other classes if they're mm. learning an instrument. And, uh, you know, but uh, not all the programs are set up perfectly. Some of them are withdrawal programs, so teachers hold kids back if they're getting behind in the classes, and that mm. affects them in the, mm. you know, and, and we live in a world now that's different from, you know, when we grew up, because every kid has a cell phone in their hands now, and the computer in their computers, hands. Computers, uh, yeah. you know, they all have access to all music, but they don't really know what any of it is, right, yeah. you know, and, yeah. uh, but oddly enough, kids are still interested in music. Right? They still come wanting to learn an instrument, and when they, when they start learning it, they still think it's cool. Mm. You know, not all of them, but not all the kids when we went through were like that either. Right? It's mm. not for everybody, but, uh, you know, it's fun. It's, especially when you get a band that's starting to happen, right? You know, the kid's starting to get it, and you can get them into dynamics and, mm -hmm. and, and get them understanding, yeah, if we play in time, it grooves, and it sounds better, right? You know? do, you, do you feel like uh, attention spans have, have diminished? Uh, I think... With Something children. I have to explain to kids a lot about instruments is they're not like computers or phone. It's not you press the button and the thing happens. They're still you still have to make the thing happen on instruments, right? You know, mm -hmm. so I teach mostly the wind instruments, so you still have to create the sound. There's still a lot that has to go in involving your mouth and your embouchure and your airflow and mm -hmm. the instrument and how the instrument's on your mouth and you know, and, and I find they get frustrated with that stuff very quickly. Right, I am I am pressing the right button down, but the right sound isn't coming out. Well, let's adjust here, let's adjust here, let's adjust here, and and they do have shorter mm. patience for that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I you know I try to explain to them that that learning an instrument is the the ultimate sort of reward based system, in that if you put in the time, the instrument will reward you, mm. and if you do not, the instrument will not. Right. So if you if you don't spend some time playing the instrument between when you see me. The next time you see me, you're still going to be in the same spot. 
Mm. But if you take that instrument home and spend a little time on your own on that instrument, next time you see me, you're going to be that much farther ahead, right? If you put the time in on the instrument, the instrument will reward you. If you don't, it won't. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the most basic equation that there is, but you and I both know how absolutely true that equation is, yes. right? Yeah. And I try to explain that to people that aren't in music all the time. I say, anytime you hear anybody play an instrument to any proficiency at all, you know that they've put some considerable time into yeah. it. Yeah, and they're right? continuously chasing And they're continually chasing it's not, it. Right? It's not like it's, it's something you master and then you're like, all right, well, Yeah, it's not like you done. It's not like they throw around the 10,000-hour thing, right? Yeah. It's not like you get to those 10,000 hours and all of a sudden you can do everything. No, yeah. I'm sure I'm at 10,000 hours and I still got a lot to work on, oh right? God. Like, so it's, yeah. you know, it's, uh, that's, that's the joy for us in music, though, is it is a never-ending never gift, right? If you keep pursuing, it'll keep giving in a sense mm -hmm. as long as you can sort of avoid the darkness that swirls around our profession right you know because mm -hmm. it is a challenging profession not it that is. others aren't but mm -hmm. it is a challenging profession totally and and do you see the like um do you still see lots of kids interested in going on to post-secondary music yeah, programs yeah yeah sure um, I mean, I deal with the younger kids. I kind of deal with the puberty ages, grade five to eight. So uh -huh. then I get them into the high school, hopefully still keen. Mm -hmm. This is my goal, to send kids still on into high school and still pursuing it. Like, right. I, I think I've succeeded if I get kids that are still in band in high school kind of right. thing. Because it's hard, you know. If you start a kid in grade four, five, there's no guarantee he's still into it by grade seven, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's to keep them engaged... <clears throat> keep them engaged, keep them improving, mm -hmm. keep them interested, right? You can't just always throw classical stuff and scales at them, right? You gotta throw melodies at them that they know, you know? Sometimes right. you gotta do the popular thing. Mm -hmm. And is the improvisation part of what you teach them? Do you, do uh, you yeah. manage to get that into um, your curriculum? Or? Later in the year I do stuff like that. And sometimes at the beginning too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess I do use it quite a lot when I think about it. Uh, not that I've sort of consciously created a curriculum that I'm gonna teach these kids to improvise, I just use it in general. Mm. Either when I'm trying to survive a class, right, I got 10 minutes still left in a class and we're sort of done what we were doing and I still got 10 minutes in a yeah, class, yeah. then you know, I come up with improv games for them all the time. You know? Right, I know right. Where, uh, even when I just first have them on sound, like in, you know, when the, it's a beginning group and they haven't even shown them fingers or anything, right, they're just making sound on the instrument one of the things we'll do is, you know, one group has a long note, one group has four, blah, 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 but one group gets to go, blah, 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 right? right. And the kids all want to do the, blah, 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 blah. Right, <laughs> so right. the, you know, that's sort of the early stages is just getting them blowing air and wiggling their fingers and, mm -hmm. and right. you know, get, giving them the confidence, oh, hey, okay, I can, I can make a sound on this thing. And then you start refining from there, get mm -hmm. them on the pitches, get them on the right fingerings and Right. You know, I really enjoy the grade seven and eights, especially the grade eights, because by the end of it, sometimes you can really have them doing some cool stuff, you know. Right. Must be sad to see them go at grade eight. Never. Like, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, you know what? I can't say that. There, there are kids that are just yeah. like you. When you went through school, you had teachers that you connected with. Right? Oh, yeah. And I, I sure. definitely have had students I've connected with. And mm -hmm. still, there's still some that there's a really great young guitar player that went through my program. He studied with Steve Briggs. Oh, yeah. Was sort of his teacher growing up. Then he came through my program. And, and I don't usually let guitar players into my band programs because, it, A, it creates a lot of extra work for me, creating the music and the stuff with mm -hmm. them. And, but it's also challenging for them because they're playing F, E flat, and B flat, which aren't, you know, the friendliest beginner guitar positions, mm -hmm. right? So um, every now and then I allow it to happen if someone seems really keen. But this year, this particular school said, you know, this kid's really a strong guitar player and really keen on staying on guitar. And, 
you know, he studied with the guy across the street and I knew who he, they were talking about. So yeah. uh, I let him in and, and he was fantastic. I used to just say, okay, Jack, this one's in E flat and it looks like it starts on the four chord. So uh, see if you can find the chords. And he, he would <laughs> He'd wow. find them. So, That's you great. know, when I was working out of the method books, getting the kids playing and reading notes and stuff, I would just, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of let him ear train and then you know we really morphed a lot of songs around him mm -hmm. that year and uh, cool and he went on and came back every year to see me and uh, and he's gone on and done a year at Berkeley and he's toured the states with some group and he's like doing really well he's around town his name's Jack Rochon okay so you know Amazing. one of these days you might run into him yeah like, that's oh, great the guy Scott was talking about oh that's cool so, yeah, yeah you, you do you know every now and then you get a kid that just stands out from the class like mm. You know how music is. There's oh, many yeah. layers, right? There's, you know, everyone in the class can maybe get, okay, this is a whole note, this is a quarter note, this is an F, right? Mm. And get it to their instrument. But then there's other layers to music, right? Do, mm. you get, do you get how it all works together? Do you get do you get the yin and yang, the give and pull, the tension and release? Do you get the dynamic structures of how louds and stops can really be mm -hmm. such an effective tool in music? Do you get that subtler stuff? Mm. And, and kids at that age usually don't or they get it but on a sort of my mind but every now and then you get a kid that's just seeing music on a level so far above his their classmates amazing that it's and it is and you're like just naturally yeah and yeah. it's and you know i i don't think i noticed those kids when i was going through school although i'm sure they were there mm -hmm. but i don't think the students notice them but as a as a musician as a educator and a musician and someone mm. who's still very actively a musician it's the minute you see them you're like wow Mm. this kid's getting it on a level no one else is wow. in this room and so I usually go have a quiet talk with them and just say hey man I know yeah I can see that you're grabbing this stuff yeah. way to go this is this That's is great. what you should look at now and I'll steer them to other stuff just quietly mm. off to the side you know let them know that I know that they're mm -hmm. head and feet above their class and here's some stuff maybe you can look at great and turn so them on to some music that turn you know, them on to some music yeah. or just say hey work on this on your instrument you could probably be working on this stuff mm -hmm. or you know try doing that you know mm -hmm. so yeah you give special attention to them just on the side mm -hmm. you know and has teaching um, young kids has that changed the way you see the saxophone not so much the saxophone because I've studied it for so long it's been a part of me for 30 years I see the saxophone at a very high level right yeah. you know? but as far as teaching the saxophone yeah I'm very precise especially with embouchure because mm. I've seen it taught wrong so often and still, you know. So I not only teach kids, I I try and teach junior high teachers too. Like, mm. look, when you're teaching the saxophone, don't get them to play it like a clarinet, right? It's not a clarinet. It's a different instrument. The mouthpiece is shaped differently. You want it going straight in the mouth. You don't want it at an angle. Mm. You don't want that bottom lip way rolled over and because yeah, they'll run into problems later. They'll, they'll hit a ceiling and that's as far as they're going on the instrument because it's... Right. They're confined, right? Mm -hmm. You know? So, you know, I don't know how I could relate it to guitar, you know? No, no. It's it's, uh, having bad hand position, maybe right. eventually it's going to stop you. Right? Yeah. Eventually yeah. there's stuff you're just not going to be able to do because you're. Mm. I love getting kids, part. like young or fresh, like never having seen a guitar before, so I can start yeah, them off fresh right mold, and get fresh, them exactly. fresh lumps of clay and yeah. you can mold them. Yeah. yeah, I love fundamentals. Like, yeah. I, that's all. Like, so I, li I, li I live at the fundamental. Yeah. You know, that's definitely where I am so I mean the main thing that I really focus on are their airflow mm. you know I'm sure some trumpet guys would get in and say oh man you need to fix their embouchures and I'd be like I'd love to if I could sit and have a half an hour with every kid but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm about getting the air through the instrument and you know getting right. them playing music because that's how you keep them engaged right yeah. so 
mm-hmm. you kind of sometimes I'm just as guilty as every other band teacher of letting some bad habits slide just for the sake of mm-hmm. getting the product right you right. know but I try and be especially right at the beginning really peculiar about getting them set up right mm-hmm. on all the instruments right you know getting the getting the flute players set up right getting their sounds on the head joints getting mm-hmm. the clarinets in the right position getting the saxophones with their neck straps pulled up to the right height you know mm-hmm. And getting the trumpets playing straight out instead of at the floor, out of the corner of their mouth. Getting the drummers holding their drumsticks properly. Right. right. Like just Fun. getting like that, a circus. You know, I have I have electric bass players, so getting them holding the instrument properly, right? Mm-hmm. Getting them to use their fingers instead of their thumb, you know, mm-hmm. or like a picking motion or whatever. Getting them actually Right. You know, so it's uh yeah, it's an ever ongoing challenge for sure. Cool. What it has changed is changed me is compositionally a little bit. Because I've spent so much time with these simple songs that are all based on one, four, and five, and maybe every now and then a three chord, right? right. You know, like it, it locked me back into one, four, and five, and how much music really just revolves around that. And, and you know, it, it forced me to try and write some songs on one, four, and five. Mm. Because, uh, you know, going through all, you know, as you go through university, right? what is a university? It's an institution of higher learning is mm. really what it is. It's not a trade school. Right. Right. So when you study music and get a music degree in university, you're studying it as an art form at a higher level. You're not studying a trade. Mm-hmm. Right. Trade is part of what you end up doing, but you know. So you go through and you take all these arranging classes and composition classes, and they're pushing you, pushing you, pushing you. Don't write in fourths and fifths. That's old. Write in third movement and third. That's what Coltrane was doing. Right. Mm-hmm. So you know, I was spending a lot of time trying to write in funky jazz harmonies. Right. And then. One day I just thought, wow, you know, people really like one, four, and five. Can you write something cool on one, four, and five? And, right. Well, yeah, there's an awful lot of really cool music written on mm. one, four. So it simplified me mm. in a way. You know, I think my last, say my last 20 compositions are sort of a lot. The harmonic structure has been simplified from sort of the 20 before that, where I was mm-hmm. trying to write harder things and more mm. extended things and movement, different movement than... One, four, mm. one, five, you know, right. whatever. I like, I like uh, limitations like that to yeah. write through. I'm know? a big limitation writer. Yeah. Like, I'll sit down and think, okay, I need to do some composing. I'm going to try the first place I always start is the blues. Mm. Right? If I haven't, especially if I haven't written in a while, mm. just to get the composition engine going, I'm going to write, okay, I'm going to sit down and write 12 bar blues in <laughs> whoever, that key, that key right? Yeah. And, then, and then do it just to get the engine going and... Mm. But I'm a big parameter, like I, you know, sometimes I'll say, okay, 32 bar form, go, or uh, mm. I want to do an A, 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 B, go, or, right. you know, like I'll put a form parameter on me. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I just write. Mm-hmm. And I write a lot at the piano. Uh, I, I've been trying to write more at the horn, which is something Wayne Shorter said, right on the saxophone, right? Hmm. So I've been, you know, I maybe have two tunes that I've written on the saxophone, kind of. Cool. The melodies, anyways, have come strictly out of sax. Yeah. I like doing both. I like getting on the on the piano to get away from my guitar brain. Yeah. But then on the guitar is good too. You know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well, because then you write idiomatic for your the instrument. Then mm-hmm. if you write on the saxophone, I'm writing something that's idiomatic for the saxophone. Mm-hmm. I find when I write on the piano, sometimes I write something that piano players really love playing and everyone else is like, well, I don't know. But, right. You know, or even myself, once I get onto my horn, I'm like, Man, this doesn't flow very well at right, all, right? right? It was beautiful little voice leading on the piano, but maybe mm. not, you know. And then guitar, it's 
sax players on guitar is facing the force that guitar players like to deal with, right? Right, we love you force. Know, you guys love force, which is that's a little trickier on saxophones, right? right so right. it's uh, not impossible, you know. Cool, There's man. no, uh, nothing hard, just unfamiliar, right? Mm -hmm. That was what I was taught in school. Mm-hmm, cool. Well, we've got, uh, so we've got tonight at the Monarch. What, yeah. Anything Nine, else coming up? Uh, like, no, I just got some Monarch shows. Yeah, and, and great. I haven't, I haven't got anything booked at the Rex right now or anything mm -hmm. like that. Uh, but yeah, I'm just going to focus. You know, I've sort of spent the last year focusing on a CD and trying mm -hmm. to get that out. And uh, You know, I've been busy. I got There's lots of stuff. i got a busy fall. Great. Yeah, my weekends are full with Good. all sorts of different things, which is kind of the way I like it. You know, mm -hmm. it keeps you on your toes and it, uh, you never get bored on a gig that way. And uh, Sideman. Sideman, like yeah, side you know, it's good. my life in Toronto has been as a sub slash sideman for uh -huh. sure. Yeah. And you've got a website, is that right? I got my yeah. website, scottdouglasmarshall.com, Scott mm -hmm. which is my full name, or if you just put Scott Marshall saxophone into Google, you'll get it. I come up, yeah. Great. Is, I'm on the first page of Google, man, yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, Apparently that's important in some worlds. I guess so, yeah. There must be another Scott Marshall out there doing something completely Well, you different. know what? I do. I know a couple. I know one in uh, in New Brunswick who's a cartoonist. Cool. And, so, and it's funny because we're friends on Facebook and stuff, so sometimes we get a weird cross... Pollination, like I get his stuff and he gets mine, and I'm sure I've pocket dialed him a pile of times, oh, right? No. You know, but uh, yeah, we're aware of each other very right. much. We've met, it. we've even compared signatures. You should collaborate sometime. But that would be cool. Yeah, eh? a little, yeah, a little cartoon, a little cartoon jazz, jazz thing. thing of some kind. Yeah, that would be really neat. Great, man. Well, thanks for doing this. Well, it's a pleasure. Yeah. It's, it's cool, really uh, cool thing you got going on. Yeah, the podcast and. Uh, yeah, I love to steal people's secrets. Yeah, well, yeah. it's not stealing. It's like I said, it's sharing, right? Sharing. It's what's the point of having the knowledge if you don't share it? Yeah, totally. Let's play another tune and go. Right. Yeah. What's it going to be? How about uh, There Will Never Be Another You? All right. Let's do it. Wherever you want. Thank you. 
to episode 15 of the Body Electric Podcast. My name is Nathan Hiltz. Uh, don't forget to visit my website at nathanhiltz.com. And uh, I wanted to let you know that on November 1st, my trio is going to be playing at the Jazz Bistro. Uh, we're going to to a night of Gershwin's music. And uh, for a couple tunes each set, we're going to have a very special guest. Heather Bambrick is going to sing with us. So um, if you're in Toronto, come check it out. All right. Thanks a lot and talk to you next week. Bye.